0: Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing those who were ill. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Jesus said, Make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About five thousand men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign, Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, "'It is I. Don't be afraid.' Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized uh, that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, the, uh, for on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty but as I told you you have seen me and still you do not believe all those the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never drive away for I have come down from heaven not to do the will to do my will but to do the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. This is God's word.
1: Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we would see and understand what is written here. We ask also that you would open our hearts that we might be nourished by the living bread of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be a people who know that we have everything we need to serve and follow you and trust you and that you will do everything necessary to bring us safely home. Amen. Amen. Why this particular miracle? Four Gospels covering three years of public ministry during which Jesus performed hundreds and hundreds of miracles. And yet only one miracle, other than arguably the resurrection, only one miracle is recorded in all four Gospels. The feeding of the 5,000. You see it in John 6. You also see it in Matthew 14 in Mark 6 and in Luke 9. Now, it is surely not the most impressive miracle. I mean, you've got to say Lazarus beats that. He's been in a grave four days and has begun to rot, and Jesus brings him back to life. I think that beats the feeding of the 5,000. Nor is it the most successful miracle in terms of people's understanding. So we read at the end of John 6, in verse 66, that from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. It didn't work, if you like. So why is this the only miracle that gets recorded in all four Gospels? It seems to me that the answer is this. The reason that all four Gospel writers include the feeding of the 5,000 is that this miracle, more than any other one, points not just to Jesus' identity. He's God. Only God can break the rules of nature. It does that but it points to his mission, and it frames his mission, his life, as the one who has come to perform the new, the true, the ultimate exodus. The feeding of the 5,000 is fundamental because it shows that Jesus has come to bring the new exodus, and that is important because if we don't understand what Jesus has come to do, we're never gonna understand what he offers us and we're always going to misunderstand what life is like following him. And this miracle tells us that everything that Jesus does, I was going to say is an echo of Exodus, but that's wrong. Exodus is like a little echo of what Jesus is going to do. He frames his ministry as another Exodus. Now, what does that mean to say that Jesus' ministry is the true and ultimate Exodus? So there's a, there's a couple of things just down on your sheet, just uh, perhaps six key points from the Exodus. So in the Exodus um, In the second book of the Bible, the Exodus of the people of Israel. Firstly, slaves, the Israelites were slaves of Pharaoh being worked to death with no hope of escape. Secondly, rescued God rescued them by punishing and judging and destroying Egypt and Pharaoh to bring his people out. Thirdly, God rescued the Israelites to bring them into relationship with him. He brought them to Mount Sinai and gave them his law, his word, so they would know how to be his people. Fourthly, God rescued the Israelites to bring them out to their own land, not just out of Egypt, but into a forever home, a paradise home for them, the promised land. Fifthly, on the way, God provided miraculously everything they needed. So in the wilderness, he gave them this stuff called manna, which is basically a kind of bread, miraculous bread to provide everything they needed in the the journey. And then sixthly, God leads them safely across the Red Sea where they face watery death. And as we look at the miracles in verses one to 21 and then the explanation in verses 22 to 40, we'll see that Jesus wants us to understand everything about him in terms of the Exodus, that he has come to bring the true and ultimate Exodus. And I hope you'll see why that's good news as as we go through, because it promises you and me a God who can and will provide for you and a God who can and will get you safely through death to eternal life. Okay, just two points for you. Uh, Jesus provides and saves on earth like Moses. Jesus provides and saves on earth like Moses. Verses one to four. And so begins one of the most famous episodes in the life of Jesus. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he'd performed by healing those who were ill. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. This is the fifth sign that John records. And Jesus is still back up north in his homeland, Galilee, his home territory. And word of mouth has drawn people from all around, all over, to see what he does and what he says. Now we love to get swept up in, the, in these kind of viral Movements that just uh, these groundswell experiences are a thing of great hope. I mean, you've got to say, I don't think an England football team has ever left these shores with less expectation than three or so weeks ago. There, there was just a collective, Nye. that was about the level of enthusiasm in this nation when Gareth Southgate donned his waistcoat for the first time and they took off. There was such a low level of expectation most people hadn't even bothered filling in the charts or booking off the time but then the results started to come in we beat some of football's great superpowers panama and tunisia and so the country went ballistic suddenly this could be it this could be it it's coming home and and so we get swept up in this wonderful movement united in a couple of weeks of wild unrealistic expectation before the inevitable crushing disappointment but it's fun while it lasts. And you can imagine the, the, you can imagine the kind of hype that's going on. Here's a guy who's raising the dead. He's healing the sick. He's performing miracles. He's calming storms. He's doing amazing things. And, and so as Jesus settles down, clouds of dust appear in every direction as people come running. Thousands upon thousands of people pouring through the wilderness, desperate to get a piece of what's going on to join this movement. Verse five, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, one of his disciples, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, a few weeks ago, there was a minor Twitter storm because uh, some American televangelists, um, I don't think you if I'm being honest, I don't think you can call them Christians given uh, the things they teach. They were, they were having, um, there were a couple of them basically defending the fact that they owned private jets worth tens of millions of dollars and they were saying this was a good thing. When they see the viewing figures coming in on their cable TV shows, when they see the crowds gather at their healing conventions, they see an opportunity to be exploited to get them rich. When Jesus saw people crowding towards him, he saw needs to pour himself out to give towards. His question was not quick, let's take up a collection. It was quick, let's feed these hungry people. No wonder people loved Jesus. The son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10:45. And so he turns to Philip. Why does he turn to Philip? Because Philip's the local. Uh, if you look at the geography, he's the local. He knows where Tesco Metro is. And so he says, okay, Philip, where do we buy food around here? Verse six. He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Well, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will that go among so many? People get very excited analyzing the differences between glass half empty and glass half full, Philip and Andrew, but the fact is neither of them is exactly full of hope at the situation. Jesus, though, is supremely calm. Verse 10, Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down, about 5,000 men were there. Now there's good reason for him not fretting about the latest catering dilemma. Only a short while ago and a little way away he did rather well when the wine ran out, so you know he's he's pretty good in these situations. He's not stressed, he's not worried. Verse eleven Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. It is not, as has often been rather stupidly pointed out, well, as this Boy is prepared to share with everyone what he has, everybody else opens up their lunch boxes, and so everybody gets to eat. This is a miraculous work of God. This is an act of creation. At the beginning of time, God spoke out a word, and physical matter came to be in the form of stars and planets and atoms and molecules. And here at this particular moment in history, Jesus speaks out a word of prayer, and physical matter comes to be again. In the form of loaves and of fishes. And certainly the crowd are in no doubt that this is a miraculous event. They're astonished and they want to make Jesus king. Verse 14, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. They want to make him king. But as we heard in John 5, Jesus lives to please his heavenly father, not the crowd. Now what happens next might seem utterly unconnected, but actually it fits the Exodus theme perfectly as we'll see. Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. It never goes well when they get into a boat. Have you noticed that? If you read through the Gospels, half of them are fishermen, but it always goes badly when they get into a boat. But there we go. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. Now they're a bit over halfway across the sea when Jesus comes to them, breaking the rules of nature by walking on the water. When they'd rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water and they were frightened. Well, you would be. He's walking on water in the middle of a, a serious storm in the middle of the sea. So supernatural walking does lead to natural fear. And then the natural fear is supernaturally calmed in verse 20. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. And a journey that began naturally ends supernaturally as Jesus brings them safely across the stormy waters and immediately, they arrive at the other side. Two miracles, creating food for 5,000 men and goodness knows how many women and children, and then walking on water and miraculously carrying the disciples safely across the lake to the other side. But what's the point? Well, as I said, the reason all four Gospels contain the feeding of the 5,000 and three of them tell immediately afterwards about uh, the walking on the water is to show the pattern of the Exodus And John 6 shows that by painting Jesus as a new, as the true and ultimate Moses. He does what Moses does. Now, there are a number of clues that are given to us in the passage. If you look at verse 4, we're told the Jewish Passover festival was near. That's the festival with unleavened bread and slaughtered lambs, commemorating that at the Exodus, Moses got the Israelites to kill a lamb in each home that served to die in the place of the people so that when the angel of death passed over the land of Egypt to strike them down in judgment, he passed over the Israelite homes, the Passover. Verse three, uh, Jesus leads them up onto a mountainside just as Moses led the people out of Egypt and up to Mount Sinai to meet with God. Verses five to 10, Jesus feeds the people with bread in the wilderness just as Moses provided manna, bread from heaven, as they journeyed through the wilderness. Verse 21, Jesus leads them safely across a dangerous sea, just as Moses led the Israelites safely across the Red Sea. And the crowd seemed to get this. Uh, Do you notice in verse 14, they declare, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. What do they mean by that? Uh, You'll see they've got a capital P for prophet. There isn't a capital in the Hebrew, but the, the prophet. Who is the prophet? Well, Moses in Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15 said this, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. How very ironic. He's the prophet, so let's ignore what he says and make him king. He's the prophet, listen to him. Listen to him. Before we move on, you and I need to recognize Jesus is the prophet, not just one who speaks the word of God like the Old Testament prophets, but as we heard in John 1, the one who is the word made flesh, the word of God. And so we should listen to him. No caveats, no matter the personal cost, no matter how out of step with our culture and its mores, whatever he says, whatever he demands, we must listen to him. Okay, so Jesus demonstrates he is the new Moses, come to lead his people through another Exodus. And the two Exodus things uh, that he does here, the bread and the sea, they teach us to trust Jesus to do what Moses did for the Israelites. So, at a very, very basic level, before you even get to Jesus' explanation, trust that he can provide for you in this life. Moses provided bread in a barren wilderness. I've flown over the Sinai Desert. There is absolutely nothing there, just red sand and rock. This world is pictured in the Bible for us as the wilderness. This world is not the paradise that God has promised for you. You and I will end up sorely disappointed if we think this world is as good as it gets. In the Exodus picture, this world is the wilderness, But even here in the wilderness, God can and Jesus will provide all your real needs. Not all that you want to make this world feel like paradise. He never promises that. But all you need to get you safely home. Oh yes, he promises that. He can provide what you need in this life. Secondly, when the people faced danger and death at the Red Sea, Moses saved them and led them safely across the sea. He took them to the other side. And Jesus can bring us safely through the storms and dangers of this life. Redundancy, cancer, divorce, miscarriage, violent crime, debilitating depression, chronic failure in battles with sin. Oh, Jesus can lead you safely through all the storms of this life. Now those things are true and they are wonderful. But to be honest, if that's as far as we get, that Jesus can do for us all the things that Moses did for the Israelites, well then we're as blind as the original Galilean audience. We'll only see Jesus as a great Moses-like leader to, to liberate the oppressed on earth. But as Jesus moves from uh, performing the miracles to explaining them, he doesn't draw the link between himself and Moses. He goes much, much higher. He makes it clear that although he can and does provide and save like Moses on this world, much more importantly, Jesus provides and saves for all eternity, not like Moses, but as God Jesus provides and saves for eternity as God. Look with me at verse 22. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized only one boat had been there and Jesus had not entered it with the disciples, but they'd gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval." It's very important in verse 26. Jesus is making the point that although they saw, they tasted the miracle, they didn't see the sign. They didn't understand what it meant. They didn't see what was behind it. And now he teaches them what the sign of the feeding of the five thousand does mean. And that is that he can give us eternal life. Verse 27. Look at verse 27. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. The bread is a picture of the life Jesus gives. Bread sustains life, but he says, look, you should be looking for something more, something that will provide and sustain not just a stave off earthly hunger, but something that will provide eternal life. And as he does this, he shows us that these ideas of Jesus as the great political liberator, the great economic revolutionary, are wrong. The true exodus that Jesus has come to bring, now I should say, Jesus' teaching has huge implications politically and economically, but that's not the heart of his mission. The true liberation he brings is from a far darker oppression than any political system has ever managed, inward slavery. To sin, the inability to stop doing the stuff that makes you feel guilty, that makes you feel ashamed, things you know are wrong, things that bring misery and pain to those around us and things that dishonor God. And so we need this true bread of eternal life because the way that we live means that we are spiritually dead, we lack life. Well, then, how do we receive this true bread of eternal life? Verse 28. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this believe in the one he's sent. In other words, you don't earn it, you receive it. You ask for it. You turn to me, and I give it to you. It's a gift, not a reward or an earning. And as they respond to this, you see that they are utterly blind. So they asked in verse 30, well, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Yesterday, yesterday they ate magic bread and they're saying today, well, we need a sign. I mean, Moses could just make bread appear. What could... It's incredible. Verse 32 Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives light to the world. Are you as great as, as Moses? Moses provided bread in the wilderness. Oh, no, no. Moses didn't provide the bread. Moses was just God's appointed leader. It was God who provided the bread. I'm not equal with Moses. Do you see Jesus is saying, I'm equal with someone far greater than Moses. He's putting himself next to God the Father. And the next verses show that's what he means as he points to himself as the source of eternal life. Verse 34 Sir so they said, "Always give us this bread." Then Jesus declared, "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The point of a religious leader is to connect you to God, to bridge the gap between, between God up there and us down here. You come to a religious leader so they can point the way, provide the teaching, um, give the, the offerings the sacrifice they can connect us to god and jesus doesn 't say That's the way to God. Let me show you, here is the bread that God provides. He says, no, no, I am the bread of life. He is God. He provides. You don't need to go to anybody else. You go to Jesus, that is God. Everything you've ever needed and wanted. As we turn to him, as you turn to Jesus, you receive life now the life of God, and a life that will stretch to eternity. Okay, how does the second miracle, I mean, you can see how the first miracle the the bread fits that, that Jesus has come to give us eternal life. How does the second miracle, the leading across the stormy seas fit with this? Well, you need to understand a little bit about the Old Testament. So ever since the flood, the seas were an image to the Israelites of decreation, of judgment, and of death. And so Psalm eighteen sixteen, God's rescue of the psalmist from enemies who are about to kill him. It says, he reached down from on high and drew me out of deep waters. That's the image. Same again, Psalm 69. Betrayed to mortal enemies, he cries, rescue me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. And just as waters, and especially the sea, is overwhelming death, so it is God and God alone who is able to protect and save from the water. So striking verses in Psalm 77. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Jesus shows himself unequivocally, undeniably, unquestionably to be God as he walks on water, controlling the sea, and then as he leads his people safely across the sea. But he also hints at what he's come to do in his mission that he he has come to lead us through the great storm, the great sea of judgment and death. He's saying what he's come to do is to provide eternal life, the bread, and to lead you through the judgment of God, the great storm, across the sea of death and safely to the shore of God's paradise. That's what Jesus has come to do. Now the final verses in our passage tonight tell us something that is, well, it depends really it's up to you what these verses tell you. Don't worry, I'm not getting all postmodern on you, but it is slightly up to you. These can either be hugely comforting and encouraging or very offensive, and it's up to you which they are. They tell us that the exodus, the rescue, the salvation which Jesus has come to enact is his sovereign work. He doesn't just break the chains of slavery and point the way out for the oppressed. He chooses, he calls, he saves, he sustains, and he delivers us safely home. Our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, does everything for salvation. Verse 35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, He does everything. Now, when we come to Jesus and put our trust in him, we experience the true exodus. We're saved from slavery to sin and destiny of eternal death. And it means we we also embark on the true wilderness journey. We don't go straight to paradise. Now is not the time of private jets and caviar for God's people. Now is not the time for drinking the wine that Jesus laid down at Cana in Galilee. He's waiting for us to drink that. Now is the time of journeying through the wilderness. But as we journey, he will provide. He will protect us from the storms. And he will bring us safely home. And the problem is that even those of us who delight to hear that Jesus is the bread of life can struggle with the stress on he in those verses. We don't like to think we we're needy dependent people. We don't like to think we can't do it ourselves. You know, I mean, okay, we need God's help, but we like to think there is something we do, we contribute, we achieve. But if we realize how needy we are, then these verses stop being a challenge to our pride and become instead a comfort in our weakness. Because let's face it, who here can create food in a desert? Who here can walk on water and get themselves safely across death? There's been a lot going on in the news this week, a lot. Um, but amidst the World Cup heartbreak, Brexit cabinet chaos and the Trump visit, nothing, nothing I, I think can compare for, for sheer joy and gripping drama with the rescue of those 12 boys and their coach from the underground caves in Thailand. You know, the, the water pump literally giving out as the last person was brought safely out of the caves. It was extraordinary. It was a Hollywood rescue. And I think you see how good it is that God sovereignly rescues you. He chooses you. He saves you. He sustains you and he brings you safely through death. You don't have much of a role in that. You just trust in Jesus. And you see how, how good it is that it's God who does everything when you think of it in terms of, uh, of the rescue of those trapped boys. Now, what they could have done is they could have sent a diver through the, the cave system with an inspirational message to the boys, you can do it. If you just believe in yourself, I've got a Disney movie for you to watch to help, uh, you just need to believe in yourselves and, and hold your breath and you can swim three kilometres underwater out to safety. Or I'll tell you what, we'll we'll provide lights and arrows all along the way and and you can do it. We're all cheering for you. You can do it. It's brilliant for their self-esteem, but they all end up dead. None of them can hold their breath that long. None of them have a clue what they're doing. What actually happened was far, far more wonderful. Rescuers sovereignly saved them. They sought them out. They found them. They came down to them. They provided them with oxygen in every one of the caves all the way along the way. And they didn't just show them the way. They literally carried them right the way through the tunnels of watery death and out onto the dry ground and safety on the other side. It is just a little echo, a beautiful little echo of what John 6 teaches and the rest of the Bible celebrates that God hasn't done a half job in your rescue God knows how desperate your predicament is. He's not, going to, he's not going to fill you with feel-good messages of you can do it. He knows that you and I will face nothing but eternal death if we're left to our own devices. We need rescue. And therefore it is deeply wonderful to know that he has done everything necessary for your salvation. Everything. Everything. So how should we live differently in the light of the fact Jesus is the true and better Moses, the one who provides the true living bread and the one who leads us safely across death to God's paradise? As I thought about that, I think there, there are lots of ways you could go, but I think the heart of it is this, be prayerful and be thankful. Everything you need, absolutely everything you will ever need is in Jesus' hands. So pray to him. As I look out, I see an enormously competent, capable bunch of people. And let's be honest, you're doing, many of you are doing very difficult, high-powered, demanding jobs. Many of you are very accomplished in your personal lives. And so the truth is, the ugly truth is, many of us don't feel like we need to pray. We pray because we know we should. We pray because if we don't, we feel a bit guilty. But it's a tick box exercise. And you and I need to remember who we are and where we are. We are the dead, and we are in wilderness. We're wandering in a desert without food, we're trapped in a cave without air. And Jesus, and Jesus alone, is the living bread, is the air we need. He is your only hope, your only resource, so be prayerfully dependent on him. Don't allow God's past generosity to you lead to present complacency. Be prayerfully dependent. Begin each day with prayer to God. The truth is, for almost all of us, our days are full of God answering prayers we've never bothered to pray. But do you realize every time you've eaten, every time you've drunk, every time you've breathed, every time a sickness has healed, every time money has appeared in your account, every time a friend has come through for you, every time something has made you laugh, every time you've been comforted when you cry, every time you've had a safe roof over your head, every time anything has happened, it has come from the hand of God. Begin each day with prayer and end each day with thanksgiving, for all of it has come from God. And remember, remember we're in the wilderness. Jesus has come to provide what we need in the wilderness, and Jesus has promised to get us safely through the storms of death to eternal life. Now, the Thai cave rescue was a wonderful, happy ending, but it's interesting, it wasn't without cost. The rescue cost the life of one brave man, a Navy SEAL named Saman Gunan. We've only gone through half of John 6, but as we look at next week, we'll see our rescue from sin and death also cost the life of one brave man, the bravest man of all, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much that Jesus is the living bread that life is in him. Thank you that he provides all we need and thank you that he can bring us safely across all dangers, right through death and judgment and into your eternal paradise kingdom. Help us, we pray, to look to him, to trust in him, to be prayerfully dependent upon him and to be full of joy and thanksgiving at all he has done and all he has promised. Amen.